University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. Thank you, guys. I know I said it a couple times on our live stream and other times, but it has been amazing um, what our ministerial staff have done during this time. Um, I'm so proud of them, the hard work and dedication uh, that they've given learning new crafts that they maybe didn't anticipate. Um, You know, you often joke as ministers things they don't teach you in seminary, uh, and Pandemic 101 leadership was certainly not one of those things. Um, and that extends, too, to our many leaders within the church. Our governing board uh, has been strong spiritual leaders during this time. Uh, for people who are honing in to caring for our congregation, not just for the short term, but for the long term, uh, requires um, adaptable leadership. And so I'm so thankful for uh, the people that we have prayerfully appointed to this church to lead us, Uh, in this time, and for many of you who have made those phone calls, who have uh, reached out and stay connected with people during this time. Um, Let's join in a word of of prayer together. God, we come to you this morning in so many different places in our faith journey. We come to you in a time where so many of us are in so many different places when it comes to what's going on in our world and how we feel about all of these things. God, the magnitude of all of the struggles happening around us, both with pandemic, with the continued racism we see within our country and our world, with our struggles with identifying with all of this. We know that you are a big enough God who can take our cries of sorrow, our cries of anguish, our cries of frustration, of disillusion and anger, You are a God who hears our cries of hopelessness. And so no matter where we are in all of these things, we come to you this morning knowing that you will lift us up in due time. Hear the cries of our heart this morning, Lord. All these things we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. These last two weeks have been especially difficult for Americans. And not only have we been dealing with a three-month global pandemic, but the overwhelming evidence that the pandemic of racism still plagues our world. My heart is filled with with sorrow for the turmoil and unrest and sorrow that we are experiencing as a country. And my heart is broken for those who are experiencing that hurt and that suffering and that anguish 
firsthand. And while we're trying to overcome what is breaking our heart, I feel as though the, the divisiveness of our world today is stepping on all of our chests and preventing us from moving forward. We are so split over racism and protests and police and partisan politics and so much more. It would be so easy to look at what's happening around us through the lens of race, through the lens of political affiliation, through the lens of location or economic status. But Jesus invites us to look at the world and to look at our neighbors through the eyes of God. No small task, right? But surely the Bible doesn't talk about discrimination or racism or oppression. Folks, if you would hear me out in saying this, that the Bible often speaks more about these things than we care to recognize. And there's one fascinating passage that comes to mind because it's a rather testy exchange between Jesus and his disciples. Let's take a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 52. Now, contextually, we've been in some fascinating things within the first chapters around Luke in this time. You see, Jesus has been calming, raging storms with the disciples on a boat. He has been expelling demons from a man who had been outcast by his community. He's been healing a woman who's been suffering for 12 years. He resurrected a 12-year-old girl who died back to life. He fed 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And then there's this amazing passage called the Transfiguration. Things are humming along. Lives are being transformed. Many people are following Jesus. And then Luke chapter 50, Luke chapter 6 verse 51, uh, not, excuse me, Luke chapter 9 verse 51 states that Jesus resolutely set his feet for Jerusalem, meaning that the showdown between the religious and political system of his day, the cross and the resurrection are there before Jesus. But then Luke chapter 9 verse 52 states And he sent messengers on ahead who went into the Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went on to another village. If I was to have to come up with a word or a phrase To describe my reaction to this passage, it would probably be something like, dang, I did not see that coming. So Jesus sends the disciples out into the villages of Samaria. Essentially, Jesus is doing the same thing he'd already previously done in a chapter in which he sent them out to go preach good news, to heal the sick, to bring people together. Except culturally and ethnically and religiously speaking, the Jews did not interact with the Samaritans. The Jews, therefore Jesus' disciples, saw the Samaritans as half-breed filth that did not deserve the love of God. You see, within this in mind, Jesus sends the disciples out into the territory to begin to bring people together so that he might minister to them. And when they apparently went into the villages, they faced opposition. They faced some sort of reaction that caused James and John, who had the nickname Sons of Thunder, I wonder why, to ask God if they should call down fire from heaven to destroy the people. 
The Samaritan village rejects Jesus, James and John, and they wanted to destroy them with fire from God. And let's not downplay what they are saying. James and John, when you really truly come down to what they're saying, this isn't a response necessarily of their rejection of Jesus because Jesus has been rejected by his own hometown, by religious leaders again and again. So what we see seeping through their call for fire from heaven comes down to one thing. It comes down to racism. The Jews view the Samaritans as half-breeds. They confined them to a certain area near their country. They wouldn't even allow them to come and worship in their temple. And one of the most glaring revelations from this passage is that racism is a blind spot within all of our societies. To the first century Jews, the Samaritans were the worst of the worst. Again, they saw them as half-breeds. The Jews even went as far as not allowing the Samaritans to worship in the same place that they worship. We learned from another encounter with Jesus with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, that they had to build their own temple to worship there because they weren't allowed in the temple in Jerusalem. And the shock of Jesus' most famous parable, the Good Samaritan, to his first hearers, would have been that the fact that the Samaritan, a man who had been oppressed by the Jews, was willing to sacrifice himself to save this man who hated him. So Jesus encounters racism within the ranks of the disciples. They did not see it as such. They did not see it in the way that Jesus saw it because this is just how the Jews viewed the Samaritans. And this is the case for most societies. We don't see racism because it's part of our cultural norm. It's part of our way of life. That's the way that we see and treat people is a part of what we have inherited from the generations before us. And people tend not to see racism because it is not part of their everyday life. They are not affected in any way compared to those who have to deal with it day after day. And when you're not oppressed, it's hard to see oppression. It's hard to see underneath the depth of the impact it has on individuals' lives. I have a friend of mine, Jim, who recently told me a story about his son-in-law. His son-in-law is a Haitian-American. He, he was born in Haiti but grew up in the United States. And his son-in-law and him, um, he had some work done to his car, but the mechanic managed to lock his keys in the car at the mechanic shop. So Jim and his son-in-law went, and they managed to get the door open. And he noticed this odd thing that happened when his son-in-law sat down in the driver's seat. He immediately took out his wallet and his registration and pinned them to the front window of the car. And Jim, of course, had to ask him why he was doing such a thing. And his son-in-law repeated back to him, Well, as a white man in America, you may not have the issue when you're pulled over by police in this area. You simply pull out your wallet and your registration from the glove compartment and give it to the officer. But as a black man living... I have to reach over to the glove box and reach in my back pocket. It's automatically assumed that I'm reaching for something like a gun or a knife. I have lost many friends who are simply pulled over and reaching for their registration. So I do this to prevent any misunderstanding. See, Jesus was rejected by his hometown. The Pharisees had rejected him. Now he's being rejected by the Samaritans. This is leading to his ultimate rejection in Jerusalem. But instead of squatting and praying, 
calling down fire from heaven as James and John so desperately want him to do, Jesus rebukes the disciples. Now, rebuke is the same word used by the gospel writers to tell us what Jesus does when he casts out a demon from a person. So this isn't a simple slap on the wrist from Jesus. Jesus is giving the disciples a scolding with the same power by which he would call out a demon. Most of your Bibles should have a footnote in it at the end of verse 55 that says something like this. And he said, you do not know what spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Jesus doesn't want the disciples associating themselves with any sort of action and mindset. And therefore, as we start to go round the road to Jerusalem, Jesus vehemently wants to correct course here. Jesus rebukes their condemning mindset. I think he's made this point plain and clear. If Jesus was in the business of condemning others, he would have done so in this moment. Jesus is rebuking their desire to use violence against other people. The disciples want to use violence to correct those who reject Jesus. But Jesus has told us again and again in the Gospels that, that, that the way of God is not met with violence. Jesus is the Savior of the world, calling us to something different. He calls us to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us, to serve those who harm us, to turn the other cheek. In fact, when one of the disciples draws a sword when Jesus is being arrested to cut off the ear of one of those who are trying to arrest him, Jesus condemns, he rebukes the disciples for their use of violence. Jesus rebukes their racism. We can only assume that their quick temper and haste to cast death upon these villagers was the fact that they were all Samaritans. And yet we learn from Jesus that the kingdom of God is for all people. With God, there is no Jew or Greek or Roman or Samaritan or white or black or Asian or Latino. God does not see race as a differentiating divide, but a beautiful display of how diverse and unique and creative God's creation is within the human race. And Jesus rebukes their oppression. We must understand that Jesus is standing against the oppressive system that the Jews had put against the Samaritans. God will not stand for the oppression of other people, no matter their race or their gender or their ethnicity or their sexuality or their economic status or their cultural worth. And when we pause and take in Jesus' words, we can often think that Jesus is preaching a new message from God. But in fact, Jesus is echoing God's message for millennia. In fact, this is a unified message from the prophets long ago to the people. We often misremember the Hebrew people's struggles with God as if it was idol worship or losing their faith or a lack of proper worship. But the prophet Isaiah gives us a glimpse into the um, ethnical failings of the Hebrew people in chapter 1, verse 11, when he writes this, The multitudes of your sacrifices, what are they to me? says the Lord, I have more than enough burnt offerings or rams or fatted animals or no pleasure in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you appear before me, who asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and convocations, I can bear your worthlessness and your assemblies. Your new moon feast and your appointed festivals, I hate them with all of my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, 
I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer prayers, I am not listening. Okay, God, we get it. You don't like their worship. What's with this passage? Why has God become so disdainful and disgusted with the Hebrew people's worship? Well, we learn it in verse 16. It becomes utterly clear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil from my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be made like wool. See, in the eyes of God, the Hebrew people's worship was meaningless because in one hand they were praising God and with the other they were pushing down others in oppression. There is no figurative language here. There is no difficult interpretation here in which the original Hebrew word means something else than what we translate into English. It's simple, it's resolute, and a rebuking message from God to God's people. Stop worshiping me and thinking you can also oppress others. But Isaiah doesn't stand alone as you flip through his contemporaries in both the northern and southern kingdoms, uh, both coming from the prophets. The prophet Micah writes this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of the body for the sins of my soul? God has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The people had a problem. They were discriminatory and racist and oppressive. And God had a solution. Stop this, or it will be the unraveling of your society. And the people chose not to listen. And so the dismantling of the Israelite kingdom began first in the north and then in the south. And their willingness to endorse a culture of injustice led to the dismantling, to exile, and to the scattering of the people among the nations. And with such a repetitive and consistent and resolute message from God over millennia, we must consider why God is so greatly concerned about oppression and racism. And the simple and most profound answer is that we are all God's children. Like any parent loves their child, God's compassion for God's creation goes beyond our understanding. With God, there is no race or nationality or faith practice or sin or marital status or social faux pas or tally of mistakes or economic status or gender identity or sexual orientation, physical or mental ability, political stance, theological perspective, or station in life. These are all human constructs and labels used by us to categorize, divide, and subjugate others. And although God created so many different colors in body and hair types, this is merely an expression of the beauty of the diversity that God spoke life into existence. All of God's beauty and diverse creation are equal. Therefore, when 
one of God's creation treats others as less, as subhuman, as expendable, we learn from the scriptures that God seeks justice. But for God, it goes deeper than just how we see and treat other people. As you look closer at the Old Testament passages, it addresses injustice and discrimination and racism and oppression. We see a glimpse into how it affects other people. As I stated before, it's often hard to see discrimination, whether by age or gender or ethnicity or sexuality, when you are an individual who's not directly experienced it. And when it comes to economic and gender and nationality and ethnicity and systematic privilege, life, I think about it for myself, has been handed to me on a silver platter. That doesn't mean that I haven't faced difficult circumstances or hardship or disappointment or rejection. However, I've been given my fair share of a leg up as a result of being born male into a white middle-class American family. If this were a baseball game, I got to start the game with five RBIs, bases loaded, no outs, and the league-leading designated hitter stepping up to the plate. A recent study of the racial economic disparity within our country opened my eyes to the reality of these things. The study found that the median net worth of white households is about 10 times the median net worth of black households. The median income for black households is little less than 60% that of white households. The poverty rate in America for black Americans is more than double that of white Americans. A large share of black Americans lack health insurance compared to that of whites. But let's step away from economic and let's look at education. Black children make up more than 18% of preschools, yet they account for 48% of all out-of-school suspensions before kindergarten. Black students were expelled at a rate of three times more than white students. According to the Department of Education, African-American students are more likely to suffer harsher punishments, suspensions, and arrests at school. Now, we can either read these statistics and think there's a systematic problem within a certain ethnicity's community, or we can consider that there's something deeper going on here. You see, historically speaking, America's original sin of slavery, although it was revoked in 1863, is continued to perpetuate in discrimination and oppression across our country. It's typically at this point in the conversation that someone's blood switches from simmer to boil. When we revert to the mindset that the church is the church, and it sure sounds like you're talking politics. You see, God does not see the subject as politics and religion as something wholly separate from themselves. They're mutually bound together. You see, that's what God sees when God sees the root of subhuman and unfair treatment of others, the systematic and cultural and governmental and economic impact it has on those who are oppressed. And I think one of the failings we have made in this Christian faith in America is that we've viewed it as just part of our lives. It's a compartmentalized box, much like we have a, a work box and a friend box and a hobby box and a family box and, and so on. And what we fail to see is that the invitation of Jesus is do not have a compartmentalized belief system in a segment of our lives. Instead, life in the way of Jesus is central to everything that we think and we say and we do. 
And those that tend to think compartmentalized in faith tend to see certain things as political rather than religious. That's why when someone starts talking about economic injustice and immigration and discrimination, they want to shut down the pastor from talking about such things. You stick with faith, not politics. And yet, as we look deeper and deeper into the scriptures, we find that God desires for our faith to be shaped by God by the way that we see politics and not the other way around. Politics should not shape our faith. Our faith should shape the way that we see policies and laws and systems. Our faith informs how we see others, not what cultural and human biases give us. This is the heart of Jesus' interaction with the disciples in our passage. Their culture in the first century Palestine for Jews was shaped by the way that they saw Samaritans as subhuman, and so therefore they discriminated against them. And you see the traces of this culture in religious and systematic racism all the way as far back as the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Listen to some of these texts. Deuteronomy 27, 19. Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 19. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great God and mighty and awesome who shows no partiality. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreign. For you were once foreigners in Egypt. But then listen to this gem from Leviticus 19.33. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourselves, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. The Hebrew word ger, which is used here in these passages I read, it, it means alien, foreigner, stranger, someone different from you. It's the equivalent of the Greek word xenos, which Jesus so famously used in that passage, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a foreign stranger and you let me in. And the undercurrent of this passage is to remind people that they were once a minority. They were once treated with such vile discrimination and racism and oppression. We too come from a faith lineage of victims of such atrocious oppression. And it would be easy for us to look at what's happening in the world around us and look at it through the lens of race or political affiliation or location or economic status. But Jesus implores us to see the world and our neighbor through the eyes of God. And one of the best ways to see the world and our neighbor through the eyes of God is to turn to God's word. Here we find God calling God's people to do some pretty remarkable countercultural things such as loving enemies, praying for those who mistreat you, blessing those who curse you, and doing good to those who hate you. When it's easy to turn to judgment and condemnation, God calls us to understanding and to mercy. Jesus echoes the voice of the prophets long ago when he unrolled the scroll of Isaiah, reading from it, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. God has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, recover sight for the blind, and release the oppressed, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These are not easy words. These are not easy mindsets to take hold of. These are not easy actions to take. And what's happening in our world around us is not easy. And the action steps are not easy to take. However, it's too easy to let television and political pundits tell us what we need to think and to do. It would be super easy to make up our minds on all of this, shutting down our neighbors and the world. It would be too easy to shut out and to unfriend, to disassociate with friends and coworkers and church members and others that have different perspectives from us. But when did Jesus ever invite us to do what is easy? But instead, he called us to what is good and noble and true. And the first thing we can do in all circumstances is to pray. To pray for understanding and wisdom and compassion and truth. Jesus models the grace of listening to our neighbors, especially those who are different from us. Consider the story of Jesus with the woman at the well, the disease, the Roman centurion, the encounters with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the beggars and the foreigners. The art of hearing without overtly interjecting is remarkably difficult in our world who always wants its opinion to be heard and always wants to be right. James challenges us to be slow to speak and slow to become angry because human anger does not pursue righteousness that God desires. So ask God to show you the buttons that tend to be hit that turns on frustration and resentment and annoyance and anger with others. Allow the Spirit of God to turn us to wonder when the easy solution is cynicism and criticism and divisiveness. Ask God, I wonder why she feels that way. I wonder why this stirs anger and hatred within me. I wonder how Jesus might handle this situation. See, Jesus calls us to have the most radical sense of love for others, especially those we don't see eye to eye with. And for those who have a different perspective of us, ask God to give us strength to love unreasonably as we embrace God's irrational grace for us. And these five action steps are, are not long-term solutions. They're simple ways by which we can live in the way of Jesus in this challenging time. But as we turn to God in prayer, as we are shaped by God's word and how we see the world and others, we are called to move towards bold action. It's time to stop thinking that conversations about racism is a political issue and not one central to our faith. The Judeo-Christian text denounces oppression and racism from the echoes of the Levitical writers calling the people to treat other people, not treat other people with contempt and discrimination, to the ancient prophets warning the Israelites of the moral decay of their blindly looking past injustice. From the call of God to not give worthless offerings that were bought by the hands and blood money of the poor and the oppressed. To Jesus rebuking the disciples for their discrimination and desire to destroy a Samaritan village. The word calls us to love in a way that we love ourselves. And I can guarantee that the way that many black Americans are systematically treated, from America's original sin to the cries of a man screaming, they are going to kill me, 
is not the way that we want to be treated. The word calls us to seek justice. And while the action steps to stand against injustice can bring change into our world, they're not easy. Silence and politically motivated consternation are just complacent apathy. And the challenge I face within me as I stand up here and preach this message about racism and oppression and how God stands against it is what am I going to do to change the world? I'll preach, I'll write, I'll post on these matters just like many of my colleagues who preached on these things last Sunday and this Sunday, but then what? It's time for us to stop talking and start listening to our black neighbors. To stop believing that there are easy solutions to systematic problems. To stop holding tightly to control and comfort that, that we fear of change. And if we as Christians in America want to be a part of change, then it's time to start listening to the black community about the effects of racism. To contribute and to volunteers with organizations working against systematic racism. And to understand that this current crisis is not just present, but always for black Americans. There is so much that we can do as Jesus followers in 2020 in America and in Baton Rouge. So may we turn to God in prayer and listening and contemplation and also to demanding action. For our response this morning, I'd like to reflect on a poem by Lily Stewart, the granddaughter of Aaron and Kim Dunaway. I'm from the ocean that's always flowing, spending the whole day at the beach, the water that's practicing glowing, forgetting what the teachers had to teach. The times were changing, yet I was unknowing. I'm from a friend full of trust, willing to give and to take to a friendship that was unjust, learning it was all a mistake. I'm from being stuck at home because of the coronavirus, just because we are alone. Doesn't mean you can stop us. I'm from the innocent people begging for breath, fires and protests because of unnecessary death, and the murderers finally under arrest. Though the future is unknown, this is, should be hold. No unneeded death and violence. No story going untold. No one hiding in silence. We need to let the peace unfold. If we want our future to be better, the brutality must cease. There should be no destruction on the newsletter. But if there is no justice... There is no peace. I invite you into a time of reflection and response on these poignant words from an 11-year-old girl. Let's reflect together.